Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Today marks the seventh week of our series in 1 Thessalonians. This is the halfway point, and today's message is titled, Tempted, and the text is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. Paul writes with an earnestness bordering on anxiety as he expresses his concern for how the Thessalonians are holding up under the pressure of temptation from the tempter. And today we're going to address spiritual warfare and the very real battle that Satan wages against God and his people. And we're going to start with a lesson from Frog and Toad. And the story reads like this. Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good, said Toad. And he ate one. And they taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog! Frog! cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I have made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I've ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog, with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You're right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie, and there were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating as cried Toad as he ate another cookie. Yes, said Frog, reaching for another cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower? asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying hard not to eat all these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There. Now we will not eat any more cookies. But, but we can open the box, said Toad. Well, that's true, said Frog. So Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said. Now we will not eat any more of the cookies. But we can cut the string on string off and open the box, said Toad. Well, that's true, said Frog. So Frog got a ladder and he put the box up high on a shelf. And there, said Frog, now we will not eat any more of the cookies. But... We can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. Well, that's true, said Frog. So Frog climbed the ladder and took the box down from the shelf. He cut the string and opened the box. Frog took the box outside and he shouted in a loud voice, Hey, birds, here are the cookies! And the birds came from everywhere and they picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad, sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I'm going home to bake a cake. It's amazing how a children's story can capture so clearly the battle we face with temptation. Too often we try to wage war with willpower alone. What is often not clear to the Christian is that not only are we battling the sin nature in us, but also an enemy, the tempter, who wants to see you and I struggle and fail in following Jesus. The Bible is very clear that the devil is real and actively working against the Christian. 
The Bible is also clear that the Christian has all the tools needed to face spiritual battles and win. So, know that the enemy is real and that Jesus has given you all you need to be victorious over the attacks of the enemy. So let's read our text today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. And this is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, and he says, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain. Paul is concerned for the Thessalonian church. He had to flee from them for when persecution broke out, and he was wondering how these new Christians were handling the pressures that were placed on them. This is a time, you've got to remember, this is a time in history when news travels at the speed of a human foot. And a lot of time has passed since Paul had to leave, and he is now unsure if any Christians remain or if they have all succumbed to the temptation of going back to their old life. And I want to point out a few details about Paul's reaction to the Thessalonians. I think we can learn a lot from that even before we get into the whole spiritual warfare part of this. And, and part of our reaction to others helps us when it comes to facing the attacks of the tempters. First, the, the few points are these. First, Paul is concerned for the Thessalonians' success instead of focusing on failure. I have yet to meet a person who likes having their mistakes highlighted, so choose to be a cheerleader instead. Coach where you can, but choose to be a cheerleader instead. Paul wants to see the Thessalonians thrive, and this should be our desire for every person in our lives. The second just quick point I see about Paul's reaction to the Thessalonians is he sees himself as on the Thessalonians' team. Now, we've gotten really good at dividing into groups as a human race, but do not forget we are all on the same team. Jesus died for us all, and right now, on this side of heaven, we are all on the same team, whether we recognize it or not. Thirdly, I would say this, Paul is discerning the Thessalonian situation with all the wisdom and experience and spiritual knowledge that he has, but Paul does not make any assumptions. He uses his knowledge, but he refuses to jump to conclusions. And I think we're living in a time where people are jumping to lots of conclusions. We should be like Paul. Use the knowledge, use wisdom, use experience, but don't jump to conclusions. Fourth thing, Paul sends a trusted worker to learn about the Thessalonians and then to help the Thessalonians. Timothy's a key person in this passage. Paul trusts him, and the Thessalonians trust him. They use a trusted person to communicate information clearly and help each other. Are you building relationships with people that you can trust? You're going to need them. And fifth thing, and that's the last thing, is Paul clearly sees that the devil... The tempter is trying to trip up him and the Thessalonians. 
Paul already has admitted that Satan has hindered him from going back to see the Thessalonians. And since he is being hindered, and they are on the same team as, as Paul is, he fears that the tempter, Satan, is working equally hard on the Thessalonians. And so he's concerned about them, and he writes to them. He doesn't want to see that they have fallen to the tempter. And this is where we will be spending our time today, talking about spiritual warfare and the tempter. One of the great failings of the current culture is thinking that we are often unsure or, or, or we're, we're often unsure of what to make of the devil. There are two dangerous opinions that people can gravitate towards, and they're at either extreme of the, of the spectrum of how to think about this tempter. The first one is this, that it's quite simply that one extreme view that's dangerous is that to say the devil is not real. That he's some sort of depiction of the darker side of human nature. And, and this is dangerous because you will fail to defend yourself against an enemy that you do not believe is real. Make no mistake, the devil is thrilled if we believe he does not exist. The second opinion that's kind of dangerous is it treats the devil like he's behind every inch and ounce of suffering and pain and setback, that somehow the devil is everywhere all the time. And, and I just want to say, that gives him too much credit. Satan is limited in his power and his ability. The Apostle Paul, he seems to stand somewhere between these two perspectives when it comes to the work of the devil and spiritual warfare. Paul very seldom, when you read his letters, he very seldom attributes human fallenness, the sin nature, to the devil. Our struggle with sin, Paul squarely and rightly places on people. The devil may tempt, but it is up to us to decide to partake of the apple, to participate in sin. There is only one place where Paul remarks about the enemy in keep, keeping people trapped in sin and keeping them out of the kingdom of God. And it's quite a strong reference, and so I'm going to read it, but it's the only place. It's from 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But other than that, Paul is pretty much in the middle. He says, the enemy is not behind every single thing you suffer and struggle with. And a lot of what we suffer and struggle with is our own decision for sin. But he does say Satan is real. And he's attacking the church. He's persecuting the church. And I agree with Paul. The power and activity of Satan is very real and needs to be guarded against by the Christian. But the power of Satan is also limited it is wrong to think of Satan as some sort of opposite equal to God. He is not. He's a fallen angel. His power is nothing compared to God's power. It appears to me that he chiefly works to persecute the church, to undermine the church, to disrupt unity, and to tempt the Christian. So what's in a name? And I want to talk about the names of Satan just, just a little bit today. The, our text today, uh, Satan is called by the name Tempter. So that's got me thinking about names. And the tempter, as he is called, is, has many titles in the Bible. He's called Satan, he's called the devil, Beelzebub, the enemy, angel of light, the evil one, the father of lies. And you know what, today I want to cover just a few names. Adversary, accuser, and the tempter. And I feel they're helpful for our purposes. 
adversary and accuser. I, I wanted to treat adversary and accuser as two different names, two different titles. But the reality is, they come from the same word, the Hebrew word Satan. That's right. Satan is not a name. It's the Hebrew word for adversary or accuser. But this Hebrew word has become our name for the devil. And speaking of the word devil, devil is the Greek word for adversary as well. These are not names, but descriptive words. And these words, Satan and devil, tell us that in his nature, Satan is an opponent to God and to God's people. He is against us. He wants to see us fail. The word Satan also tells us one of the chief ways that Satan opposes us is that he accuses. He's an accuser. And the first two chapters of the book of Job, if you were to go there and read that, you'll find interactions between God and Satan. And Satan makes his mark by accusing. And you'll find all kinds of accusations from Satan. He accuses God of protecting and sheltering Job. And, and he accuses Job of only being faithful to God because God protects him. Please guard yourself against the accusations of Satan. He's called the father of lies for a reason. He loves to tell lies that are sprinkled with truth. The enemy looks to weaken the Christian with whispered accusations. And he'll say things like, You're not really any different now than you were before you became a Christian. You've not really made yourself any nicer or holier. You're not really worthy of God's forgiveness, but nothing could be further from the truth. The other name I want to talk about is Tempter. And Tempter is a title the devil has given in our text from 1 Thessalonians today. Satan's temptations are always false shortcuts to good. And what I mean is this, Satan promises something good, but he never delivers. You might know it's bad, or that it's bad for you, but the temptation is that even just for a split second, it's what you need. It'll satisfy you and move you forward, but it never, ever does. The devil's temptations are all false shortcuts. They lead to sin and death, and these temptations take us out of the will and plan of God. I see this most clearly in the only other place that Satan is called the tempter in the New Testament. It's there in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has been out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the tempter shows up, the devil, to try to trap Jesus. And three times in the story, he approaches Jesus to tempt him. And each of these attempts promise to give Jesus a false shortcut for God's plan. What is God's plan? That Jesus, his son, is the Messiah, the Savior of humanity, that he is to come to this earth and give his life on the cross, dying for our sins so that we could be restored to God. Each temptation offers a false shortcut to this plan. The first temptation is to turn stones into bread. And yes, Jesus is hungry, but bread is the way that Rome won the allegiance from people it conquered. They would provide bread for the people. They would provide bread and anything else the people needed uh, to once they were conquered. And they thought this, if you provide for the people's needs, they will not mind if you roll over them. And the temptation is this, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. The people want you to be their king. They'll be yours again. 
And of course, this does happen when Jesus feeds the 5,000. You can read about it in John chapter 6, verse 15. The reaction of the crowd is a wrong reaction. It says, perceiving that they are about to come and take Jesus by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again by the mountain by himself. The second temptation is for Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and have God save him. Uh, the particular spot in this temptation is where the Jews expected the, the Messiah to announce himself. Uh, and so this is like a shortcut saying, you don't have to go to the cross to be the Messiah. Just announce yourself from the temple. Everybody's looking for that anyway. Just do it, Jesus. And the final temptation is that Jesus or that the, de- the devil will give the people of the world back to Jesus if Jesus worships Satan. In a way, saying, you don't need to die on the cross to get everybody back. Just worship me. But Jesus came to rescue the people of the world. And that's just it. That's the hitch in these temptations. Jesus didn't come to possess for himself all the people. He came to redeem us. Each temptation is an attempt on Satan's part to speed up and derail God's plan. And the same is true when we face temptation. Thomas Brooks penned these words. Satan promises the best, but he pays at the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. Since Jesus' response to the tempter is with Scripture, I'd like to offer a few Scriptures today for you to keep in mind when you're dealing with the attacks of the tempter. And so the first one deals with this idea, okay? You need to keep this idea in mind when you face temptation from the tempter. The devil's bark is worse than his bite. Satan can bite, but only with the teeth that you give him. And you'll find it in this scripture in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. It says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This text tell us, tells us that Satan is a roaring lion. Not a biting lion. It does say he's looking to devour, but he's roaring, not biting. And a lion roar is powerful. I heard one once at the zoo. I was a long way away from the lion exhibit, but I felt the roar of the lion in my chest. And sometimes we feel that roar of Satan and we mistake it for a bite. Don't do that. Uh, Writing for Moody Monthly, Carl Armerding recounted this experience he had watching uh, a wild cat in the zoo. And he says this, As I stood there, an attendant entered the cage through a door on the opposite side. He had nothing in his hands but a broom. Carefully closing the door, he proceeded to sweep the floor of the cage. Now he observed the worker, and he saw that the worker didn't have anything to protect himself with. He just had a broom. And in fact, when he got to the corner of the cage where the wild cat was laying, he poked the animal with the broom. The wild cat hissed at him and then lay down in another corner of the enclosure. Armerding re- remarked to the attendant, You certainly are a brave man. And the attendant said, No way, I am not brave. He replied, and he continued to sweep. Well, then that cat must be tame. No, came the reply, he's not tame. Well, if you aren't brave, and the wild cat isn't tame, then I can't understand why he doesn't attack you. The man chuckled, 
and replied with an air of confidence, Mister, he's old. He doesn't have any teeth. It's that way with Satan. He's got a roar. He can only bite you with the teeth that you give him. Second thing I'll tell you about spiritual warfare, dealing with the tempter. Satan can be resisted. James 4, 7 and 8 tell us this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are told to resist. This is important in facing the tempter. Here's a quote I like. The thing that makes men and rivers crooked is following the line of least resistance. We often don't care too much or don't think too hard about resisting. We go with what's easy and best and most comfortable, and we end up crooked. When it comes to spiritual warfare, resisting the devil is not enough. I love the part about the passage where it says, you must also draw near to God. Too many times people want to know uh, what is sinful and what isn't, as though the point of life is getting away with as much as possible. Instead, the point of life is drawing near to God as possible. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's not just avoiding, it's drawing near to God. Barry McGee writes this story, reporting from the Denver Post. Like many sheep ranchers in the West, Lexi Fowler has tried just about everything to stop the crafty coyotes from killing her sheep. She has used odor sprays, electric fences, and scare coyotes. She has slept with her lambs during the summer and has placed battery-operated radios near, near them. She has corralled them at night, herded them at day, but the southern Montana rancher has lost scores of lambs, 50 last year alone. Then she discovered the llama. The aggressive, funny-looking, afraid-of-nothing llama. Llamas do not appear to be afraid of anything, she said. When they see something, they put their head up and walk straight toward it. This is aggressive behavior as far as a coyote is concerned, and they won't have anything to do with it. Coyotes are opportunists, and llamas take that opportunity away. Apparently, llamas know the truth of what James writes about. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The moment we sense his attack through temptation is the moment we should face it and deal with it for what it is. Some of you out here need to be more llama-like. Do not let the devil have any opportunity to get into your life. And that leads me to my third uh, tip for dealing with spiritual warfare, and that is this. Give the enemy no footholds. Ephesians 4.27 says this, and I'll read it from the English Standard Version first. It says, And give no opportunity to the devil. Sounds a little bit like our llamas taking away opportunities from the coyotes. Well, I learned this verse as a young Christian reading the NIV translation, and it says, Do not give the devil a foothold. Not a crack, not a place to put his grubby fingers and hold on. Give him an inch and he will take a mile and he'll set up a stronghold in place of that foothold. Benjamin Franklin says this, It's easier to suppress the first desire than to satisfy all that follow it. The Great Wall of China is a gigantic structure which cost an immense amount of money and labor and life. When it was finished, it appeared impregnable. But the enemy breached the wall. Not by breaking it down or going around it, they did it by bribing the gatekeepers. They found a foothold. Charles Spurgeon says this, What settings are you in when you fail? Avoid them. What props do you have that support your sin? 
Eliminate them. What people are you usually with? Avoid them. There are two lies that Satan wants us to believe. First is this, just once won't hurt, and secondly, now that you've ruined your life, you are beyond God's use and might as well enjoy sinning. Learn to say no, and it'll be more use to you than being able to read Latin. One of the biggest footholds we give Satan is that we often leave ourselves empty. Now, I've got a theory. If you leave an empty box or drawer about the house and you don't give it a purpose, it will soon fill with odds and ends and become a project that needs to be cleaned up and organized. You can throw away all the junk that accumulates, but if that box still has no purpose, it'll just fill up over again. And Jesus talks about this problem when it comes to spiritual warfare. Matthew 12, 43-45 says this, When the unclean spirit was gone out of a person, it passes through the waterous places, seeking rest, but it finds none. And then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings it with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so it will be with this evil generation." If it finds the room empty, that is an important phrase. Too many of us are feverishly emptying our lives of junk, but not filling our lives with God. Fourth thing is we can only fight the tempter with God's power. Ephesians 6.11 says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We started this message with a children's story from Frog and Toad. And I think too many of us believe that the success of a Christian is found in mustering our own strength and willpower. I just have to get better at this. I must learn how to resist this on my own. I've just got to figure this out. The secret is we have victory over the enemy and our struggles with sin by God's power. God does not ask us to face the devil by ourselves, but with the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, he gives us the armor of God. Do not for one minute believe you must figure out how to resist the tempter and temptation on your own. That itself is a lie of the enemy. The reality for the Christian is that we are never alone. We are covered by the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and God is now our Father too. Don't you ever Try to face the tempter alone again. You don't need to. So the devil's real. And he truly does wage war on God and his people. But he's not going to win. The tempter's bark is worse than his bite. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Do not give the devil a foothold. And victory over him is won by God's power. As we close, I want to encourage you to take some time and pray. This year's been a tough one, and I know that part of this year has been the result of spiritual warfare. There's no other way to explain it. I also know that through this year, the devil has used hard times to get at us. So today, someone here has let the roars of Satan paralyze them. Declare victory over his noise. Today, someone here has had the enemy trying to flood into their life, Resist and start that resistance by drawing near to God right now. 
Today, someone needs to give up the footholds in their lives. Give them to God. Do not let Satan build on those footholds anymore. Get in touch with someone, a trusted teammate in the church that you can talk this through with and be accountable to. And today, we all need to know that victory is won by the blood of King Jesus. Know this. Celebrate this. Live in His victory alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today I pray against the attacks of the devil. The church has an enemy. He's real. He's a liar. He's a cheat and a tempter. Lord, help each one of us to resist his deadly promises. Help us to see all the more clearly how much we need to love. We need the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Arm us with your full armor. Lord, help us as a church to stand up in battle against the tempter in our communities. Lord, I pray that you would root out strongholds and footholds so that more and more people could come to know victory in Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go with Jesus.